Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 6, and we will read verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we begin our consideration of this uh, concluding section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians concerning uh, the spiritual warfare, the Christian warfare that characterizes the life of uh, the Church of Christ. Uh, the armor of God, which he provides for us in this warfare. And uh, this section is introduced with the word, uh, finally. Finally, my brethren. Now, we ought not to dismiss uh, this section or hear this word as if Paul is simply saying, oh, by the way, there's just one other little thing that I have to say before I close or uh, then, I'm, then I'm going to be finished. Oh, or this is kind of like an addendum, not really so important, but just something I want you to consider in closing. But rather, we ought to hear the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit teaching us that here is teaching that we need in order to apply all the practical directions of the previous section. In fact, in order to uh, live and believe in everything that is revealed. And, uh, in this book, everything that is revealed to us in scripture. And, uh, and that also means that Paul is not here introducing a totally new subject. As if he were saying, oh yeah, by the way, we are in a spiritual warfare. Uh, but rather, the opposition that we face, the temptations that we deal with, they are assumed to be the characteristics of this world in which we are called to live Christian lives. This is the situation in which we are to shine as those who are light in the Lord, in the midst of a dark world, in the midst of a world that is under the power of the, the prince of the, the air who rules in the sons of disobedience, as we've read already back in chapter two. We are to live lives of holiness in contrast with who we are by nature, in contrast with the world which is dead in trespasses and sin and under the power of the devil. This uh, previous section that we've considered regarding human uh, relationships in which we are to live the Christian life, marriage, for example. Well, what about marriage? We're called to live faithfully in our marriages, but we do so in a world where unfaithfulness, with all its resulting misery and breakdown, is increasingly uh, the norm. It's quite characteristic of this world in which we live. Marriage, rather than a beautiful uh, relationship depicting that relationship between Christ and his church, is often a battleground. It's a battleground between two people, and 
And in that sense, it's also the devil's playground where he wreaks havoc. How many ever even think of the devil's work with respect to marital conflict and ask themselves, what is Satan's design in our difficulties and troubles? What is his aim? Perhaps instead of uh, facing off against each other, we ought to stand side by side and face off the real enemy who's seeking to destroy this institution of God to harm us. What about relationships between parents and children and between uh, superiors and inferiors with respect to the the workplace? Well, this too, this is the uh, a battleground for souls. The devil instigated rebellion against authority way back in the garden. He instigated rebellion against God's authority. And it's the devil who instigates abuse of authority. And we have to recognize his role in these things. And realize that raising children is uh, training in spiritual weaponry, you might say. Spiritual resistance and, and conquest in an environment that is hostile to their very survival spiritually. Raising children is training as Christian soldiers. That's the reality of the context in which we are given uh, this direction here as Christians. We are baptized, but uh, you might say we are baptized for spiritual battle. In the early church, baptism was viewed and understood to be a kind of formal enrollment as a soldier of Christ in a kingdom of light. Baptism is our insignia. Baptism is the place where our Christian name is placed upon us as we engage in this spiritual warfare in which we are called to fight against and overcome sin, the world, and the devil, and his whole dominion, as the prayer in the form for baptism says, to be baptized is to be enlisted in the kingdom of Christ in which we renounce the devil as a member of a holy army of God. How many professing Christians today really take this seriously, if they believe it at all? Is it a basic part of your self-knowledge and understanding of the Christian life? It must be if we think biblically. We need an acute, a sharp sense of what has been called the antithesis. Years ago in Reformed writings, this word antithesis was commonly used to describe this stark contrast that exists between truth and error, between light and darkness between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, between the word of the Lord, that is the thesis, that is the declaration of the truth, and the antithesis, which is Satan's deceptive, lying answer and contradiction and subtle distortion of the word of God. We have to live this antithesis. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What what agreement Does the temple of God have with idols? What agreement is there between a Christian and an unbeliever, between Christ and the devil? And the assumed answer, of course, to all these questions is there is no agreement. There is no harmony. There is no truce. There is no neutral ground. It's a relentless conflict, a spiritual warfare. There is a stark contrast between the morality of the world in which we live nowadays and the morality of many of your fellow workers, and the morality of God's Word. And we need to feel this difference. 
as a difference also between what is truly lovely, truly good and beautiful and wholesome and attractive, and what is hateful, what causes misery, what wreaks havoc, what dishonors God. So in that sense, we might say that this this antithesis, this sense of the spiritual conflict, the warfare with evil, is not something that is simply uh, taught to our children. It's also caught by our children as they observe our responses to the evil of this world, as they observe our distress sometimes over the reality of the immorality of our culture in which we live. Perhaps as they observe anger. Yes, we're called to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we're sinners, our anger can so quickly become sinful. But that doesn't mean that there is no place for real anger, righteous anger against evil. Hate the sin, love the sinner. And I think that's a, that's an important and a, and a, and a biblical distinction understood properly. But it ought not to be a kind of slogan that would really minimize the significance of that genuine hatred for evil and for sin. You who love the Lord, hate evil. It's because we love God and we love His law. We love His ways. That evil is not simply judged to be in error and incorrect, but there's uh, something repulsive and uh, something that creates a a revulsion, something that creates an emotional response to us, in us, as more and more we love God and, and His ways and His Word. And that means that, yes, Christians, they make judgments. That doesn't mean they're judgmental. That doesn't mean they take pleasure in pointing out the sins of others. But they make righteous judgments. They distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad. Sometimes they show indignation and grief. And that's something also that uh, must be passed on to the next generation. You know, sometimes I'm concerned that there could be an overreaction to a distorted response to uh, sins like homosexuality, right? Because I think it's it's true that many Christians, they only reacted with disgust and contempt and revulsion towards such sins in such a way that often fail to take into account that those who practice such sins are just like us by nature and they happen to be ensnared and guilty in these things. Now, those were sinful attitudes, but I think there's also a danger that the pendulum can swing the other way in such a sense that, yes, we are to love all people and we are not to uh, have any kind of attitude of condemnation towards them. But the danger is that that Christians can lose a kind of moral revulsion against those sins that were one time viewed more biblically as abominable in God's sight, but are becoming so pervasive that then it can almost seem to be quite normal in the lives of children and young people growing up with these things. And I think it's a, it's in a sense we have to walk a tightrope here. We have to love people sincerely and not treat them with disgust or contempt, not refuse to talk to them, but we ought not to lose our moral revulsion against sexual immorality. And there's a lot of influences in our world that could uh, lead us uh, down that path. That's why Paul, we read it earlier in this epistle, he says, do not let anyone deceive you with empty words. For such things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't let smooth words 
deceive you about the seriousness of such sins. The world wants us to accept these sins. The world wants us not only to tolerate them, but to celebrate them. And it will be satisfied with nothing less. How are our children going to withstand the tremendous influences and pressures of the LGBTQ uh, plus agenda in our day? Well, they need to be engaged in this spiritual warfare with spiritual weapons, but understanding what we're up against. And I think one of the ways in which deceitful and smooth words can often be used in our day, and it really changes minds and turns hearts on this very question, is the language of love and acceptance. Love and accept everybody for who they are. And that can quickly merge or morph into love and accept people despite their sins in such a way that you do not rebuke, you do not express disagreement or disapproval, you dare not speak a word of judgment against such sins the way the Bible does, because that communicates a lack of love. And brothers and sisters, we have to realize that there is a difference between feeling loved and being loved. Our goal is not simply to make people feel loved. The cults do that. They're very good at that. That's one of the main attractions of the cults. And people will testify to how they, they felt love and acceptance by this group. You can listen to the interviews of those young girls, teenagers, girls in their early 20s that were caught up uh, into uh, the, the Manson family. Some of you older ones remember Charles Manson and his murderous rampage, butchering seven people through instruments, tools that he used, girls who are part of this cult. But you listen to their testimony and how they felt such love, such acceptance. They were completely welcomed into this inclusive society. They felt loved, but they were not loved. They were taken advantage of physically, emotionally, mentally. They were made tools of Manson's murderous schemes. There's a difference between feeling loved and being loved. Sometimes love involves rebuke. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke. Therefore, repent. And we're called to love people truly, but wisely and faithfully. And that means that we must be governed by the word of God. Smooth words are the trademark of the deceiver. You see, the assumption of our text is this great antithesis, this warfare with powerful enemies. I've said before that the problem with many people is not that they don't believe in God. The problem with many people is that they don't believe in the devil. Now, they don't truly believe in God, or they would have a knowledge of themselves and of their sin and of their weakness. But there are many people who believe in God, so they say, but they don't believe in the power of evil. They don't believe in the power of the deceiver. They don't believe in the deceptiveness of their own hearts, but rather they're rather confident in their ability to work things out for themselves. They're rather confident in their ability to define their own religious views for themselves. They don't take into account the antithesis, the fact that Satan has a counterword to the word of God. And the fact is that every person is either living by the Word of God, the Word of God is shaping our values and our outlook and our behavior, or the only alternative is that we're living by the lies of the devil. 
We're taken captive by his will or our minds and hearts are being held captive to the truth of God's word. There's a starkness and a simplicity to this antithesis that's just foundational to the Christian life. And if we see this, we will recognize the urgency as well as the encouragement of our text. In view of these powerful enemies that we face, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. We need its realism. We need its invigoration. Well, it's a rather long introduction, but we're going to move then to consider the teaching of this text, uh, verse 10 specifically, and its call to be strong. Beginning, first of all, in our call to be strong in faith. Faith in divine power, the power of God, the power of the Lord to keep you, to preserve you, to protect you, to deliver you, to rescue you, to raise you up when you fall. Because you need that power for all these reasons. You see, this first strength that we're considering here is not a strength, first of all, to do, but spiritual strength to trust in the Lord himself, what he does, what he will do for your help. In a sense, we might say, without your contribution, as if it depended upon you. One iota, Josh was... Joshua was called to lead Israel in the conquest of uh, the land of Canaan. And indeed, they were to be active in that conquest. And we'll consider that uh, aspect, too, of this call as well. But all the while, even as they are called to be active in military engagement, they were to know that the battle was the Lord's. It was not their uh, military strength that would that would win. In verse 8 of chapter 10, we read, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, that is, the surrounding uh, nations who conspired together to destroy Israel. For I have delivered them into your hand, not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Now, those that Israel killed with the sword, that's the Lord's doing as well. He enabled them to do that. But the fact that the battle was the Lord's is made so remarkably clear, the fact that the Lord fought from heaven using hailstones to defeat these enemies. In verse 24 and 25, after they had captured these five kings of the nations that surrounded him, they brought out those kings to Joshua. And Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings, and they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The Lord God fought for Israel. That's the summary statement. In Psalm 44, the psalmist says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hand for war and my fingers for battle. 
my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. Even as God equipped his servant literally with skill to fight, David acknowledges that the power belongs to God. We sang from Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. His confidence is in the Lord. He shall hide me in his pavilion. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies. The acknowledgement that it is the might of the Lord that provides security and safety and victory. And this is a faith and divine power that we are to have despite our weaknesses. And we are going to see again further that the Lord gives strength to fight. We are not passive in this battle. But he doesn't save us by our activity. As if he needs our aid. Or as if, as the statement uh, goes, I don't know if it's still current, but I remember hearing it. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Or as if God does our part and we do ours and then together we can somehow pull it off. No. Was that the case with Peter? Remember when Jesus warned Peter that he was uh, subject to Satan's murderous power? He desires to have you. What was the solution? I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And Jesus also admonished him as he entered into temptation. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Did Peter watch and and pray? No, he didn't. Did he enter into temptation? Yes, drastically so. Did he stand? No, he did not. He fell. But was he lost? Was he ruined? No, because of the prevailing prayers of his mediator. And he was restored by a look from the Savior that penetrated his heart and conscience and brought him to weep in repentance. It's the Lord's doing. The righteous fall often. Seven times they rise again because Christ keeps them. We're to be strong in the Lord, strong in faith in his power, strong in faith in the one to whom we are united. Here again, we ought to hear special significance in this language. Be strong in the Lord. Yes, in that Lord who is exalted far above all principalities in power and every name that is named, who himself suffered, who is humbled, humbled himself, but is now exalted. That Lord in whom you were chosen before the foundation of the world, in Christ, in whom you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in whom you are accepted, in whom you have an inheritance. It's in union with this Savior. This great Lord, be strong in him who himself engaged the power of the devil, who himself was tempted, who suffered, and who can sympathize with those who are tempted, but who also overcame and is exalted to the right hand of God. And you are already in Christ, in union with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. You already share uh, his victory. But you still must fight, but your victory is sure in him. 
Because you are in him. You are united to him. In this saving union, this relationship that you have with him. We are in Christ. And yes, indeed, our our part is to live by faith in him. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Chapter 3, verse 17. And that's how we are strong. Strong in faith, despite the power of our sins. You know, many would say, you know, I'm not... I'm not afraid so much of outward circumstances. I'm not so much afraid of people or events, but I'm afraid for my own sinfulness. It's my own deceitfulness that defeats me. Well, we heard that great assurance of pardon from Micah chapter 7. And did you catch that little phrase there that accompanied this assurance of pardoning mercy? That God will subdue all our iniquities. It's on that basis that uh, the prophet could also say, In the previous chapter, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. It's faith in Christ. Christ for us, Christ in us. By his Holy Spirit, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. And to be strong in the Lord is to be strong in faith, trusting in him, relying on him. That's first. And then in that connection, we hear the call to be strong to fight. The Christian life is a spiritual battle. Yeah, we heard David's description of the Lord giving him hands for war and fingers for battle. And yes, he showed great skill. And it's not a kind of skill that uh, he learned uh, on the battlefield contending with Goliath. No, he had shot a lot of stones out of uh, his sling for probably a long time before he was put to the test in that conflict with Goliath. But it's in the strength of the Lord that he was able to defeat this enemy of God's people. In the name of the Lord, he came to him. And his confidence was in God. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the description of him in 1 John chapter 3. I should read the uh, previous uh, verses too. It says... uh, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. We hear those uh, words. For this purpose was Christ manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And we rejoice in the fact that he defeated this accuser, that he delivered us from his power. But it's not simply, it's not simply forgiveness and justification that's involved in Christ's destruction of his works. It's also the power of Satan in our own lives, delivering us from the dominion of his rule over our minds. So that though we sin, and John is clear, if we deny our sin, we're liars. But there's still a difference between living in sin as a lifestyle, as a way of practice, without repentance, without the positive practice of righteousness. Well, that would show that we're still under the power of Satan. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Also, those works whereby he leads the children of disobedience captive to do his will. And we rely on Christ also to enable us to engage in this spiritual warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. 
far greater enemies, far more deadly and powerful than flesh and blood. And we wrestle against them. And we wrestle against them with spiritual weapons. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul describes that when he says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see that this spiritual warfare of living by the word of God and carrying on this ongoing conflict, this this relentless argument that takes place in the Christian mind as we resist the lies that confront us, as we fight against those uh, deceitful words that arise from our own hearts. And we need to counter them and cast them down and bring our thoughts more and more into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We see that that's a lifelong process, isn't it? But it's one we must be engaged in as Christians. We do so by the Lord's power that is in us. Ephesians, we've already heard it in chapter 1, verse 19. This power that is toward us. The power that raised Christ from the dead. But chapter 3 also speaks of the power that works in us. And so inspires us to wrestle with purpose. To fight. That's the language of the Bible, right? Again, Paul's uh, uh, description of his life in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. He's not a shadow boxer. He's got real enemies that he's engaged with. And the first enemy is himself. Thus I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Yes, Satan would also employ those very uh, desires of our own sinful nature against us. We have to wage warfare against him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so being strong in the Lord makes us strong to fight. Now that was true with these physical conflicts of David and the Israelites. They actually were engaged in physical uh, warfare. But in this spiritual battle, progress, resistance, standing your ground, we'll see how important that is, just to stand and not be overcome. Those who are physically or uh, mentally strong-minded or healthy and hale and powerful in that outward sense, they have no advantage over the weakest child of God because this strength is not physical. It's in the Lord. And the weakest can be as David in this respect. We follow the one whose kingdom cannot fail, who all his foes shall quell, and all our sins destroy. And so we fight, brothers and sisters, in the assurance of victory. And that assurance is so important to invigorate us, to inspire our prayers, and to inspire our songs. Christians must abound in songs of deliverance, songs of victory. That's why it's important for Christians to sing the Psalms because the Psalms, more than most hymns, are very, very much saturated with the reality of the antithesis. 
the reality of the difference between the righteous and the wicked, the reality of the di- of uh, this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, in the midst of our spiritual weakness. And the Psalms abound with songs of deliverance and praise to our great God and King. We're going to look at the spiritual armor, uh, the Lord willing, in weeks to come. But I want to read an Old Testament passage uh, about spiritual armor. It's in uh, Isaiah chapter 59, uh, 59, begins this way, addressing the reality of the terrible spiritual moral condition of Israel. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. That's a description of our Savior. As one clad in armor, as one who obtains victory all on his own. And it's a victory to deliver and to redeem. The Redeemer will come to Zion. Yes, we're able to put on the arm of the Lord, but that's because our great victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already conquered, and we are in him, and we can be strong in him. And we may learn to use that Christian armor, those provisions that he gives us as we follow him in this battle with a certainty of final victory in the Lord, in whom I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content in difficult circumstances. I can suffer with patience and endurance. I visited uh, Grace Dyke Inc. on Saturday, and, uh, you know, it, it just struck me how she appears to be a, a, an example of one whose life is just quietly ebbing away. She lays in bed. She's at peace. But uh, in the few times I've seen her since I returned from uh, holidays, she was weaker than when I left. And the second time I saw her a few de- days later than uh, Tuesday, she was weaker. And yet you read the scripture and this uh, smile comes over her face and there's peace in her eyes. It's a, it's a picture of conquest in the face of suffering and death. It's a picture of the Lord's sufficient grace to uphold us in our weakest times. And it leads us to glorify such a great Savior. Amen.